This afternoon we'll return to the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, our final final phase in this in this cycle. And in the practice this afternoon we'll return to a very simple approach that was taught by the Buddha himself, and that is this more of a kind of a spatially expansive sense, a kind of pervasiveness of this aspiration, this well-wishing of, of loving-kindness, uh, just extending the awareness out, really kind of as if your heart is expanding out in all directions, wishing all those to the north, south, east, west, the intermediate directions above and below, wishing that each one may be well and happy. Or that's expanded a little bit in the commentary by Buddha Gosa in Visuddhimagga, uh, and it's a really extraordinary teaching on, on this meditative practice, the metta bhavana, where his sequence there, just so we know what the classic, you know, the kind of the classic sequence is, uh, is that as one is directing one's loving kindness to others and beginning with oneself, that first thought is, may we be free of animosity, animosity or ill will. And you may recall in Buddha Gosa's quite brilliant analysis of that which is diametrically opposed to loving kindness, the catalyst and so forth, that indeed the, the, the distant enemy or that which is diametrically opposed to loving kindness is kind of, it's almost semantically obvious. It's the wish that others would actually not find happiness. Not find happiness. So exactly the opposite of loving kindness. And you may have experienced it at some time versus just some person just rubs you the wrong way and you don't want them to be famous. You don't want them to succeed. They'll be happy if they don't succeed. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it, you know. Or you might actually have ill will for yourself, and I, I don't really deserve to succeed. I, you know, and that's ill will self-directed. And so in the cultivation of loving kindness, he begins with that aspiration. May I, and it can start with oneself, may I be free of ill will. Call it ill will, malice, animosity, whatever. But it is that wish. May you not flourish. May you not find the happiness that you seek. May I be f- free of even the, the fragrance of that, even the scent of it. Just that it just doesn't arise. May I be free of that? Because clearly, for me to find happiness, there's no way I can carry that baggage with me. I can't venture into the realm of, of flourishing and bring ill will with me. I mean, something's got to give, and it's going to either be my holding on to ill will or it's going to be loving happiness, but it can't be both at the same time. So it's kind of like jettisoning toxic baggage. So for me to flourish and find happiness, first of all, may I be free of animosity. And then he continues... May I be free of affliction. And my sense, my interpretation of this is he's really referring to kind of the physical pain that grabs us. And I think we've probably, nobody here is probably so young that you've never experienced intense physical pain. When it happens, it really captures the attention. I've had it. I've had it. had motor motorcycle accident once. That really caught my attention. You know, and it kind of like your world centers around the pain. It gets you in its grip. It's hard to be happy and flourish and so forth when you're just overwhelmed by pain. Right? So may we be free of that. Especially the physical, the physical affliction. It could be from illness, it could be from injury. May we be free. And then he moves on to more the mental domain. And what's highlighted especially is anxiety, but it's that whole realm of mental unrest, of agitation, of disequilibrium, of just feeling bad mentally. And of course, we're not going to carry that into flourishing either. So he moves on, and may I be free of anxiety. There's a kind of a cipher for that whole realm of mental dukkha. And so may I be free of ill will, free of affliction, physical affliction, free of mental affliction, as in anxiety. And may I be well and happy. 
May I live happily, may I be well and happy. So finally, it's as if he knocks down the barriers that which really get in the way of truly being happy and flourishing, knocking them one one by one. First that which is diametrically opposed, ill will. And just imagine no matter what everybody else does, anybody else does, no matter what kind of circumstance you encounter, however awful, that ill will is simply not the response. Something else, but not ill will. And imagine just being so the mind being so healthy that this mental deformation, deformity of ill will just doesn't arise. And imagine how nice that would be. And then the physical, the mental, and then may I be well and happy. And one way, I, I think this is an individual interpretation, but it's, I don't think it's really wrong. And that is this nice phrase, though, may you be well and happy. It kind of rolls off the tongue. I think many of us have heard it many times. Uh, here's one interpretation that I think is kind of sensible. And that is, may you be well and happy. May you be well, may you be hedonically well. And that's so important. I mean, I keep on emphasizing that. This is not trivial. But may you be well. How are you? Doing fine. Hedonically, doing fine. Good. So happy. And may you be happy. And now we're talking about the happiness that Dalai Lama speaks of when he says, the pursuit of happiness is the meaning of life. So now we're talking about eudaimonic. So when you say, may you be well and happy, if we just kind of include both, We've left out nothing. Nothing important has been left out. You know, maybe hedonically well and eudaimonically happy, truly flourishing. So there's some of the central theme. Now, final point, and that is we expand into all the directions, just letting this this field expand in all directions. Of course, where we're expanding to is to embrace all sentient beings without exception. That's the thing. That's that's boundless or immeasurable loving kindness, but embraces all, with excluding no one, right? Um, but again, to make it practical, that it doesn't just kind of go off into some ethereal, absolute conceptual abstraction, like you know, maybe I missed a galaxy. You know, there's a hundred billion of them. Did I get all of them? I, I'm not. I could have missed some. Did I exclude some sentient beings by missing a whole galaxy with, you know, like a trillion stars? Oh my goodness, I've left out trillions and trillions of sentient beings and I didn't even know that galaxy was there, you know? Uh, And so clearly that's not a very practical route. But coming back to the words of my precious teacher, again, Losangasso, the abbot of the first monastery in which I studied, all sentient beings, all all sentient beings are all of the beings you encounter. Physically, personally, by way of media, or by way of your mind. You remember them, you call them to mind. Those are the beings you encounter. And so, dear friend of mine, Matthew Ricard, in speaking of this in a compassion, I think he was explicitly referring to cash compassion, he said one of the effects, one way that you know the practice is working, and he was speaking of compassion, it's exactly true for loving kindness, is that as you're sitting quietly and perhaps enjoying the meditative cultivation, let's say, of loving kindness, and it is explicitly, of course, this arousal of this aspiration, how do you know whether it's been something more than a mere intellectual exercise, just some concept, some imagery, just something kind of empty, insubstantial, and inconsequential? How do you know whether this is really something that's worthwhile, it's meaningful, and transformative? And his point, so well taken, was that if you find as a result of your meditation, when you're just sitting quietly, not really doing anything for anybody explicitly, when your meditation comes to a close, and you venture out, and you're engaging with other sentient beings, do you find that you are actually poised, poised to serve the needs of others? 
if, if that was an aspiration, is it a real aspiration, such that when you encounter someone and they're clearly wishing for something, that you're already, you're, you're, like you've already primed everything, oh I, oh, I can help you? Good, how can I help you? You know, you're already, because that's what your meditation was for. It was designed to launch you into life in a spirit of loving kindness. Okay? So he was speaking of compassion, that you're right there ready, eager, all primed to help alleviate someone's distress, if that's a, if that's a possibility. And so one very nice way this, this can manifest is when you think, as you come out of meditation, you've been finally meditating on all sentient beings, and then you come off the cushion, and you go off to the dining hall, or you go here or there, and you meet a sentient being. You say, oh, you're one of the ones I was thinking about. You know, you're one of those all sentient beings. You know? And even if it's just a person zipping by on a little moped, or maybe walk, you know, whoever it may be, or maybe one of those little caterpillars or whatever they are, the, you know, those little trams that go across, across the street, those little red bugs, whoever it is, that as soon as you see any sentient being, that it just becomes more and more natural that as you breathe out, you're breathing out loving-kindness. You know, you're practicing the Donglen, the Tongzen, the, the Tong part of Donglen. Just as you're, you may be sitting, sitting quietly, maybe you observe somebody else over in the dining hall enjoying their meal, or maybe in, in line to get their meal, and you just breathe out. It comes just naturally. And of course, there's nothing outside, so there's nothing ostentatious, nothing showy. All anybody else sees is that you're breathing, if they're noticing anything at all about you. But as you're breathing out, you just breathe out, perhaps we, even with the light, or just breathing out, breathing out loving kindness. And that's your first response. So as you see somebody. It's a nice way to greet people. And they don't even know you're greeting them. But there it is. You know, you're already there. So, I think it's worthwhile. Okay, let's practice. By the way, who, who is Mark's buddy? I presume you all had a buddy system. Is, is somebody here Mark's buddy? Oh, you are here. Acha-cha. Okay, you're, you're on. Is it, uh, good. Because I was experiencing this big emptiness of Mark. Like, whoa, not there. So you're Mark's buddy. And do you, do you, did you do that kind of thing? Did you have a buddy here? You do or do not? Did you do the buddy system? But you don't have a buddy. Anybody else not have a buddy? Um... So, so uh, Alan and Anne and Mark, anybody else not have just... And, okay, um, I'll leave it to you. I'm not going to be a matchmaker here of buddies, uh, and it doesn't matter what gender people are. Uh, but if you just have somebody... In it, there's no big deal about this, it's, but it's not trivial that, for example, let's imagine, and I'm not trying to match anybody, but let's imagine it's, it's Anne and Amanda, just that you kind of keep an eye on each other in utterly a spirit of friend, friendliness. It's, that's all there is to it. But if Anne isn't here... Then somebody notices. So, so it happened to be somebody else noticed, and it was a, a tie, of course, that noticed the cushion was empty. But if, um, just, if, if, if I'm just giving an example, if Anne seems, if she just seems a bit down, if you just look at her and she feels a little bit down, that somebody especially is looking after her, and that would be you. Or if she's not here, or if she needs to take off, if Anne needed to go to, you know, get de- dental work done or something that if she can't contact me, that she'll say, okay, Alan, uh, uh, Amanda, would you please let Alan know I can't come in the afternoon, I need a dental appointment, okay? So whether it's Anne and Amanda and, and Alan and uh, Mark, 
or you want to shuffle that around, that's your business. But it, it's nice to have that. So that just, there's somebody there that's kind of just keeping an eye on you simply to be of help. That's it, just to be of help. Okay? But nobody falls through the cracks. I'll give a story of this. It's, this is not insignificant. But it was during the time of the Buddha. And there was a Sangha. This was ordained monks. And, uh, and there was one, one monk that was really ill. He was very, very ill. And the Buddha noticed that here he was. He's really suffering. And none of the other monks were taking care of him. He was falling through the cracks. I guess he didn't have a buddy. You know, but there he was. He really needed attention. And nobody was giving it to him. And the Buddha then addressed the whole Sangha there. And he said, Sangha, monks, you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of each other. This is really important. Don't let anybody fall through the cracks. If somebody's ill, take care of them. Because if you don't take care of each other, who's going to take care of you? you know? So, just a friendly admonishment, but don't let anybody fall through the cracks. The community here. So for a little while, another four weeks or so, we're a little Sangha here, a little transient like cloud formations coming together and then disbanding. But for the next four weeks or so, we're a little sangha here. And I think we are doing it. And the fact that somebody noticed that, that Thai, somebody, that Thai noticed that that cushion was empty, and I did too, but, but he brought it to my attention first, um, that we're just looking after each other. Just that. Okay? Good. Nice segue into loving kindness. As we venture into this meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, a phrase springs to mind that I heard when I first translated for Solnitz Dalai Lama in Switzerland, 1979. You are your own protector. You are your own protector. So in the spirit of loving-kindness, in the spirit of truly taking care of yourself in a loving and conscientious way, Settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm. Calm and soothe this conceptually turbulent mind with mindfulness of breathing.
And now in this spirit of being your own protector, truly taking care of yourself, or to use one of my favorite verbs, attend to yourself. In the spirit of tending to yourself, watching over, caring for yourself. If you will, arouse this aspiration or the sequence of aspirations. May I be free of animosity. If you find it helpful, you may once again visualize your own Buddha nature, your own pristine awareness, or Rikpa, as an orb of light into your heart. With each out-breath, let this light of primordial purity flow out and suffuse your entire being, purifying all that obstructs your happiness and flourishing. May I be free of animosity. And imagine becoming free. I be free of physical affliction, whether by simply being free of it altogether or by, be, by being free of grasping onto and identifying with it. Either way, may I be free of physical affliction with each outbreath. free of anxiety, mental distress. I be well and happy with all my hedonic needs met, may I truly flourish.
And with each outbreath, imagine this becoming so. Imagine realizing your heart's desire. Your whole being filled with light. Now expand this field of caring, this field of loving-kindness. In front and back, to the left and right, all directions around you, above and below. And for those of us here in this room, in Phuket, Embrace in this field of loving-kindness those immediately near you, knowing that each one, like yourself, wishes to be well and happy. each one be free of animosity free of physical affliction free of mental affliction Each one be well and happy. With each outbreath, expand this field, this field of loving kindness, out beyond this room, in all directions, 
expand this field of awareness to the point where it has no limits, no boundaries, embracing, encompassing all sentient beings. With this vast spaciousness of awareness, holding that field, the awareness light and open, whoever comes to mind, let them invite themselves. Just come up to mind spontaneously. And whoever comes to mind, whether it's an individual, a community, a region of the globe, Whatever comes to mind with each outbreath, arouse these aspirations. May you be free of animosity, free of physical affliction, free of mental affliction. And may you be well and happy. Each out-breath, breathing out this light of loving-kindness. Imagine each one finding the happiness they seek, realizing their heart's desire.
release all appearances and let your awareness, your awareness rest in its own nature. And linger for a little while after the chime. Let's bring the session to a close.
mazo. As we venture out of meditation into our post-meditative state, uh, there's a request, and I think everybody knows who Mark is, who's sitting on a chair now rather than the cushion, and for a reason, um, just happy, I'm very, very happy to just pass this on. It's a request. Uh, Mark's been having some problems with the back, there's a lot of pain in the back. And so if there's anybody here who thinks you might have some skills that might be able to ease his pain, uh, please let him know. And he's in room. You can just leave a note if you like, uh, and it's room 2334. Somebody think you can help him out? That would be very nice. Oh, yeah. So, is there anything to discuss tonight? Any questions or comments? Yes, Sylvia. Three questions. Okay, but just give one. one at a time. Uh, the first one, what is the acquired sign? What is the acquired sign? Yes. Good. The acquired sign, this is a term that comes from Theravada Buddhism. I've not found it anywhere else, not in Tibetan Buddhism, and I don't know Eastern Asian Buddhism very well. It might be there, I don't know. But it's very clearly from the Theravada tradition. I give you better, I could give you a big, long discussion. I'll try to give moderate size. Um... Among the many de different techniques that the Buddha himself taught for practicing shamatha, achieving shamatha, achieving first jhana and first jhana, and on beyond that, uh, there was one set called the ten kasinas. The ten kasinas, and a kasina means an emblem, like a uh, like a universal emblem, like almost like a um, archetypal, an archetypal emblem, emblem or a representative emblem. And so they were earth, water, fire, air, white, red, yellow, blue space, and consciousness, those ten. Right? And for many of them, and perhaps all of them, I'm not quite sure of that right now, but for many of them, uh, let's take an example, the earth element. The earth element. In that one, you actually focus on an emblem of the earth, which means simply it's kind of like a clay pizza or a clay tortilla, uh, just a round disk of, of homogeneously covered soil, with no sticks and stones, things like that in it. And you just gaze at it visually. And that, that clay tortilla, that's your preliminary sign. It's a physical object. You gaze at it and you focus single-pointedly on it, but you kind of immerse your mind in it. You kind of, kind of fixate on it, really. And you may also actually verbally recite a Pali, the, one of the Pali terms for earth. Right? It could be Sanskrit. Or it could be Spanish or English. It doesn't really matter that much. But so it's like earth, 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 mentally reciting. So you're just kind of trying to absorb your mind in this a representative earth. Now, it's made out of dirt, so that's earth. But the earth element, of course, is not just dirt. This is earth element. This is earth element. Anything that's firm and solid. So you're focusing on the earth element with this disk of clay as the emblem, and that's your preliminary sign, right? And you develop kind of a single-pointedness there. Try to be as focused as you can. And, and so, and then you have your sessions, post-sessions, sessions, post-sessions. But after some time, I'm leaving that very vague, then in, even in between sessions, there will arise a mental image, a mental image, that is kind of the mental extraction of this visual representation, but it's not going to be a mental image of earth element, right? And that's your acquired sign for the earth element. 
That's a mental image. And as soon as that comes, starts coming up spontaneously, and it's not something visualized. Anybody can visualize, you know, anybody who can visualize, can visualize a, uh, a mud pizza. But this is something that arises spontaneously, but very much linked with the fact that you're saturating your mind in this emblem of earth and reciting earth, 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 and really focusing on it, almost as if you're attached to it. And, but when the mental, the mental image arises spontaneously, and it comes repeatedly, that's your acquired sign, and then you, you kind of wean yourself off of, you, you, come, you come away from the physical emblem to the mental, and then that becomes your meditative object, right? But it's clearly connected with what you're looking at. That mental image is your acquired sign, and you focus on that until you achieve shamatha, on that. And when you achieve shamatha, then you get the counterpart sign. And the counterpart sign, again, this is so often overlooked by just overlooked by people who just don't quite know quite enough about these practices. This counterpart sign is far, far more subtle. It's a hundred or a thousand times more subtle than that acquired sign that was simply a mental image. And this, this counterpart sign is actually emerging from another dimension of existence. It's not coming from this desire realm, this physical realm, this world that we're familiar with. It's emerging from, almost like a bubble coming out of a pool, it's emerging from the rupatatu, the form realm. And that counterpart, counterpart sign has been described, this is very interesting from a Jungian perspective, uh, although it's just straight Buddhism. That counterpart sign is said to be the, the conceptual quintessence. I think one can say simply the archetype. But the conceptual quintessence of earth element, and earth element being the element of earth throughout the entire universe, wherever there's anything that is solid and firm, that's a manifestation or an instance of earth element, right? You've now, from a deeper dimension of existence, the form realm, you've have now you've got the very quintessence of that, the counterpart sign of the earth element. And if you wish to achieve full jhana and not just access, which is what you achieve with shamatha, then you take that counterpart sign as your object of meditation. So it was first the earth, earth pizza, which is really easy. Anybody can look at earth, you know, oh, I got it. But then the acquired sign is more subtle, mental, right? And then comes the counterpart sign, which is still mental, but it's coming from another dimension. You lock onto that and you achieve shamatha all over again on the counterpart sign. And it doesn't come overnight because it's so much more subtle that it will take some time to be able to develop that stability, that continuity of clear attention on that very, very subtle image. Um, so that's a counterpart sign. Now we relate this now to your the practice of mindfulness of breathing. We're tending here, sooner or later, to the sensations of the breath at the apertures of nostrils. What are we attending to? The air element. Because it's air coming in and out, in and out. And so as we attend to this, over the course of time, as you're focusing just on this tactile sensation, then after some time, very vague, there will spontaneously arise in that general area, or around your target area that you're focusing on, there will arise purely in your mental domain, the dharma datu, the mental domain, there will arise an image that will be recurrent and it will be quite similar. It will gradually become the same and it can appear in a variety. It could be a, appear simply a, a star of light, a, 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 like a garland of flowers. It could be like the moon. It could be like gauze, like a luminous gauze, or, you know, like that, like a cloud. So there's variety. Buddha Gosa gives a whole list of them and I cite them in my book, Attention Revolution. And so when it comes regularly, and it comes especially when you're really quite deep in samadhi, it doesn't come when your mind's just wandering, right? So it's not just a wandering thought or a stray image that cropped up. And that acquired sign 
is something that is perhaps a little bit mysteriously somehow connected to the earth ele- the the air element air element so when it arises regularly comes again and again and again then you disconnect your attention or disengage your attention from the tactile sensation over to the acquired sign this purely mental image and you that's your object of meditation until you achieve shamatha but now one one theravada meditation teacher called this anapanasati he said let's not translate it as mindfulness of breathing because at some point you're no longer being mindful of the breathing you're mindful now of the acquired sign that's not breathing let's call it mindfulness with breathing so the breathing got you there but when the acquired sign arises then you disengage your attention from the tactile sensations you focus on the acquired sign until you achieve shamatha and then the counterpart sign of the air element arises and then you can either just be satisfied with shamatha and go on to vipassana or bodhicitta or whatever you like or you can go on and take that as your object and achieve full jhana in the air element okay so that's very, this is why i really like to teach mindfulness of breathing primarily from the theravada tradition it has just a lot of nuance and subtlety and clarity that i've not found that i haven't found elsewhere so it's very and it's clear there's an enormous amount of experience behind it so they've really taken mindfulness of breathing as one of their perhaps really it is their primary method for achieving shamatha i think it's been true for a long time but there is this other nice variety earth water fire air and so forth okay um why uh, why when you are meditating so quiet yeah the the breath comes becomes too subtle oh the reason for that is because you're meditating really quietly yeah that is the breath becomes coarse for various reasons one is going a uh, physical activity you need more air you need more air the volume of the breath is greater therefore the sensations are coarser right but also i could be get it's just sitting here and just start to have some really unpleasant memories and get make myself really angry okay or maybe really desirous you, you can do that all by yourself but when the passions start arising craving anger whatever we start getting upset anxious fear and so forth when strong emotions arise the mind, the mind starts to go into a state of imbalance then we'll also start breathing more he- breathing more heavily in the practice of shamatha you're just sitting there and so physically you don't need much air and then you're letting your mind settle freeing it from the imbalances the disturbances of craving hostility other passions and so forth so psychologically you're calming down physically you're calming down your body needs less air so the sensations of the breath become subtler and subtler until when you if you want to just follow that trajectory what's it well how subtle does it get and the answer is after you've achieved shamatha if you decide to follow the the path of dhyanas just straight samadhi path then you can achieve the fully achieve the first jhana second jhana third jhana gets subtler and subtler your breathing is getting subtler and subtler even though you're not paying attention to it you're you're really up there in the form realm your mind is immersed in the form realm and then your mind still immersed in the form realm you go into the fourth jhana at that point it said you achieve the the perfection of equi- equilibrium of upeksha the perfection of equanimity it's just even your system is now on a on a relative level this is not nirvana it's not buddha nature or anything like that but within samsara 
In that fourth jhana, you just have now just perfect equilibrium. That is, you're beyond joy and sorrow. You're beyond sorrow when you achieve the first jhana. There is no explicit sorrow or misery. But then in the first jhana, the second jhana, there's still a sense of well-being, bliss. Third jhana, there's a sense of well-being, no more bliss. Fourth jhana, there's not even a sense of well-being. It's too coarse. It's too disturbing. Have even experience of this well-being. You move beyond that to just straight equanimity. And when you hit that utter equanimity without even any perturbation of pleasure or pain, pleasure or suffering, then the breathing goes completely flat. There's no breath. And it's not like you're holding your breath or you're breathing out and then holding it that way. Your breath, like a pendulum, just comes to rest right in the center. And then it just... And it's very slow. It, it just gradually gets subtler and subtler and subtler and subtler until there's no breath. And that's when you achieve the fourth jhana. And, then, and you can stay like that for days with no brain damage. No, otherwise, all, the, all those who got that, they'd never be able to teach it. <laughs> you know, it's such defect of the brain. Uh, 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 <laughs> it wouldn't be good for anything. <laughs> so, no, but quite, quite interesting. And, you know, a fascinating thing. I'm now just going off on my, what, you know, tangents, whatever you like, I'm a lot. But fascinating thing about this is with this whole samadhi trajectory. And this is known, the Hindus knew it first, I think, in India. And then Buddhists picked it up. But if you're in samadhi, if you're you know, going quite deeply in samadhi, um, the body winds up being just fine. People who get injured or get very, very sick and they have to lie in bed, there are major problems all right, of just atrophication of the muscles and all kinds of really quite awful things happen if you're just lying there all day. But if you're in samadhi, lying down or sitting, lo and behold, that doesn't happen. So a friend of mine is an, a neurologist at UCLA. He just sent me an article just a, few, a week or so ago and is commenting that uh, some study was done uh, that just sitting is really bad for your health, like sitting at a desk and typing or doing whatever people do in their offices. It's really bad for your health. And, th- and they showed some, you know, this is how it's bad, one way or another. Sitting, just being stationary, sedentary, bad for your health. So don't sit, don't sit. And so then uh, this one colleague then wrote to Cliff Seren, prin- uh, the, he- the head of the Shamata Project, principal investigator, and me, and said, this study showed that it's really bad to be sitting a lot. And you meditators, you sit a lot. But you have one study showing that doing a lot of meditation can actually might increase your longevity because of the telomeres and, you know, so a physiological effect in the body. So you're saying on the one hand it increases longevity, but they show indications that if you're just sitting a lot, this actually can de- decrease your longevity, decrease your lifespan because of the physiological detriment of sitting. And my response to him was there are sitting and then they're sitting. If you're just sitting typing or sitting ruminating or reading a newspaper or lying in a hospital bed and just watching television, well, that can be really detrimental. But you can be in those same postures and if you're meditating, the effect on the body is very different. So my neurologist friend thought, oh, that sounds like a really good topic to study scientifically. Okay? So that was a long-winded, multi-tangential response. What's your third question? Well, it's uh, more than insight with a question. Yeah. Um, I began to eat less because uh-huh. I feel so fat. Yeah, we, we, need, we need less, <laughs> then, yeah. Uh, but I, I realized that uh, I need to eat because my meditation becomes too... Yeah, it's very true. Why? Yeah, very true. Why? Ah, 
Actually, I have an answer. Amazing. I'm, I'm surprised. But that's because I've had so, had so many good teachers. And also in Tibetan medicine. A lot of exposure to Tibetan medicine. Uh, we have these three basic humors, vata, pitta, kappa, or wind bile, phlegm, wind, bile, and phlegm. And if the body, even if we're not hungry, if the body is not getting sufficient sustenance, um, you know, solid food, uh, then that disturbs the prana. It disturbs the vata, vata, pitta, kappa, the, the, the wind humor, which is closely related to prana, to the, also closely related to the air element, for that matter. And so if we're not getting enough grounding in food, then it makes the, the mind a bit light because it's going to the air element, you know. So the mind, the mind gets more dominated by air element, by the vata, by the wind, wind humor, and that makes it less stable. And so when we're meditating, the meditation can be more unstable, more restless, just a lot of stuff happening. And then also, and this is one major re- it is the major reason I eat at night. I'm really not hungry. Really, I'm just, I, I don't have that much hunger anyway. But I do eat. I eat something, and it's usually a bit of carbs, but just something that's solid. I don't go for a, I don't go for a, a salad. I like salads a lot. I don't eat them so much in the evening. I'll go for some carbs, maybe some veggies, something like that, or soup, and bread, maybe bread or something like that. So it doesn't have to be a large portion. I'm not hungry anyway. But I'm finding if I eat that, then I get the sleep that I need. Whereas if I skip the evening meal, uh, the, my, my mind is too clear, and not in a good way. It's just too clear. It's too clear to fall asleep, you know? And I know how much sleep I need. I've got a really good sense of it. And if I have a little bit of food in the evening, then I get just the sleep I need. When I wake up in the morning, I'm fresh and have a good day. So that's why it's important not to over... So this is what you, may, you might remember Ledat Lingba in his one-page discussion of settling the mind. He said, find in terms of your own experience the proper amount and type of diet and behavior. So we can say behavior is not only ethics, but it's exercise. And diet is food. So there you are. So we need to find, and this is individual, because we have a lot of different body types here. Yeah? So you have to take, a, take into account your own body type. And I think the Indian Ayurvedic, the Tibetan, and also, but also traditional Chinese medicine. They have a lot of very ancient wisdom here about different body types, and therefore what type of diet and what type of exercise is best for one individual versus another. It's not the same. So that's why. You don't eat, the, 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 the wind humor comes up too much, and then the mind can be both agitated, but also too clear, so you don't get that calm and that groundedness and a good night's sleep. Okay? Sounds good. Yes, Yen, please. I want to ask, uh, what do you think about the Amidawa Pure Land? And from the Chokchem view, uh, uh, what's what's mean from Amidava yeah. Pure Land? Yeah. What do I think about it? I want to go there. And how does it relate to Dzogchen? With complete compatibility. So that, you didn't think I could give a short answer, did you? <laughs> That's my short answer. Um, it's a matter of faith. That's for sure. That is, there are many aspects here. I, I could talk about mind-body relationship, nature of consciousness, and so forth and so on, and majamaka, and whether phenomena have inherent nature, the role of consciousness in the universe. And I can give all kinds of evidence and reasonings from physics and Buddhism and philosophy. So I, you know, one can really have quite a compelling presentation there. Not, not be compelling for everybody, but it's, it can be very intelligent. When it comes to... I was speaking to somebody else today uh, in just a one-on-one meeting. When it comes to Buddha nature, for example... There's no really, I've never heard of any really slick argument 
like, wow, that was such a powerful syllogism. Now I believe in Buddha nature. It's not that type of phenomenon. If we embrace the notion, if we embrace the hypothesis, the theory, the assertion that every sentient being is imbued with Buddha nature, you know, it's an intuitive affirmation. It's not blind faith. For me, it's not blind faith at all. But it's not, it's not by way of reasoning so much. It's more Buddha nature affirming itself, right? coming from a deeper intuitive level. And we can call that faith. I have no problem with the word faith at all. Everybody's got faith. Atheists have faith. Agnostics have faith. Materialists have faith. It's just what you have faith in. Nobody's devoid of faith. You'd have to be brain dead to have no faith. Really. We all believe things that we don't know to be true. Everybody. Unless you're unconscious. Then you don't have any beliefs at all. And you don't know anything either. So, one more, once again, you know me. That was another tangent. But as with the Buddha nature, so it is with the Pure Land. There's, there's no evidence that we can point to that, you know, oh, that's really compelling evidence, or that was such a powerful syllogism. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith in the, in the Buddhas. You know? it's, and it's very much of a Mahayana. It's not Theravada. It's East Asian, and it's Indo-Tibetan. It was rooted in India. So it comes from the whole teachings on Amitabha, Sukhavati, the pure land of Amitabha. It's rooted in India, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. Very, very much flourished and really embraced East Asia, but no less, no less Central Asia, Tibet, Nepal, Mongolia, very much part of that tradition as well. And so the understanding from, my, uh, from the Mayana perspective, which is the only perspective there is, really, to understand this from the inside, is that this pure land, let's say, of Amitabha, Buddha of Upane, boundless light, Buddha of boundless light, Amitabha, uh, the pure land associated with him, the Sukhavati, or in Tibetan, Dewachen, it's not within the realm of samsara, it's not a deva realm, or asura, or human, animal, and so forth. It's not, within, it's not within samsara. People are not born there because of their karma. People are born as human beings because of their karma, as devas because of karma, and so forth. But you're not propelled by your karma to be reborn into a pure land. It's not how it works. So how does one take birth in a pure land? It is, of course, by the blessings of Buddha, Amita, Buddha Amitabha, but then there needs to be something from our side too. Otherwise, just all sentient beings would just be born into pure land, and then there would be no no more samsara. Within a very all you have, everybody would have to just die, and samsara would be finished, because the great siphon of Amitabha would just suck them all up into into sukhavati, and everybody would be finished with samsara. That doesn't happen, and so to take birth there, one must be living a life of very pure ethics. There is no substitute for that. There's no way around the ethics, right? Avoiding violence, being of service when we can. That's the essence of it. There must be that. There must be faith and aspiration that one actually yearns to go there, uh, including prayers, dedication of merit, dedication of merit to be born in that pure land. That's what's needed from our side. And then from Amitabha's side, the un account, the understanding that I've, because I've been taught this repeatedly from, the, from Tibetans, I've had very little instruction in East Asian Buddhism, uh, is that the very creation of this, of this Sukhavati, the pure land of Amitabha, this is a creation of the, from the mind of the Buddha. It's a creation. And it's drawing on the merit that the Bodhisattva, Amitabha, as for you know, lifetime after lifetime, eon after, eon after eon of his practicing dharma, he was dedicating his merit that when, when he becomes a Buddha, that he may do so and that this will be his offering to sentient beings as this pure land. 
And his prayer was that may, be, may beings be born there simply by calling out my name, simply by having faith in me. May they be born in this pure land. And there, it's not just heaven where you, you know, the, the silly cartoons are playing a harp forever or just having a really good time forever. There's nothing trivial about it. It's not silly. That you are born into this field, a domain, uh, that is purely a creation of the Buddha mind. And the whole point there is that you are now born in the presence of a Buddha, namely Buddha Amitabha, and you can receive further guidance, teachings, and you can practice and achieve bodhicitta, become a bodhisattva. Maybe you remain there long enough to become an Arya Bodhisattva. You remain there until you feel moved by compassion that it's time for you to return where people can really, where you can really help people. If we are born in Sukhavati, there's not a whole lot we do for other people. You know, we're born there. We're going there, like going to the hospital, you know, to purify our minds, to develop bodhicitta, to develop realization, to the point that moved by compassion, guided by wisdom, we are ready to take birth back in samsara and continue our practice here. You know? Continue our practice here. So I remember one of my teachers, Gishing on Taigi, long time ago, after he because he was the one that really laid the foundation of Buddhism for me. I mean, he really taught me Buddhism. I mean, gave me the big picture. I trained with him uh, quite intensively for a couple of years. And uh, so I learned all about the six realms of existence. Hell realms and Pretas and all of that. And I remember commenting to him, I really don't want to take re- rebirth in one of those lower realms. And I was kind of taking them seriously, which I still do. But he spoke with, with a lot of depth. He was a great scholar, but he was a formidable meditator as well. He knew what he was talking about. And so I just made this comment, you know, boy, I really don't want to take rebirth in one of those unfortunate realms. He was quite stern with me. You might remember the story. I've told it before. Quite stern with me. He said, I mean, you shouldn't think like that. You should be happy to go to the lower realms. Out of compassion, you should be willing to go to any realm, including the lowest hell realm, in order to serve sentient beings. So don't have this notion, I don't want to go to the lower realm. Forget that. You be ready, if you need to. If you can serve sentient beings in the lower realms, and out of compassion, be holding that thought, and not, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. So that's the motivation of people coming from Sukhavati, coming here to help. So this is very so the Dzogchen tradition is primarily carried through history, through lineage, primarily by the Nyingma tradition, the Nyingma order of Tibetan Buddhism. Others practice it also, but this is their baby. This is this is a major thing that Nyingma tradition, tracing right back to Padmasambhava, and before him, quite interesting. This is history that I don't know a whole lot about. I know, Robert, you're interested in history. This is an area I'm interested in and I don't know much about. But one of Padmasambhava's primary teachers, maybe, I can't remember. My history is not that good for Buddhist history. But one of his primary teachers was actually Sri Shri Singha. That's, a, that's an Indian name. But he was Chinese. He was Chinese. And he transmitted two Padmasambhava teachings on Dzogchen. And this Chinese, Sri Singha, took an, Indi- an Indian name, uh, that traced back to the back, back to India, but it went by way of India, at least one lineage, by way of India to China, and then to Padmasambhava, who was himself Indian, and then it went from there to Tibet. So, the Dzogchen tradition, carried by the Nyingma tradition, uh, is utterly compatible with, kind of hand in hand, uh, with the teachings on Abhitabha and other Buddhas with their own pure lands. So it's very much part in the same family, in the same family. 
it's absolutely not different sects or kind of somehow debating sects. There's nothing in that at all. And so I've received Dzogchen teachings from multiple uh, lamas in the Nima tradition. And for all of them, the teachings on Amitabha, Sukhavati, as well as other Buddhas as well, very much part of the tradition. Very much part. So it's probably true that among traditional Tibetan Buddhists within the Nyingma tradition, those who are practicing Dzogchen, I wouldn't be surprised, I don't know whether this is true, but I wouldn't be surprised if all of them practicing Dzogchen are also doing other practices outside, such as state of generation, state of completion, prayers to Amitabha, and so forth. So it's very complementary. Right? The Dzogchen path per se, the straight Dzogchen path, it's just, it's like falling down a well, very happily falling down a well, where you just go from your coarse mind and then you just plummet right down to the substrate consciousness and break through that and you just go to Rikpa and then you keep on going deeper into Rikpa until Rikpa almost like you've fallen in and then it goes into a geyser. You know, it's all imagery, of course. I think I'll be playing Italian. <laughs> uh, but, you know, with all my hand movements also. And then it becomes a geyser. <laughs> and the full creative potential of Buddha nature is manifested by Tutgel, the direct crossing over, right? But it's all about just fathoming, going right down to the depths of consciousness and then unleashing the full potential of your own Buddha nature. So it's really a very straight track. But virtually, I don't know of anybody among traditional practitioners who don't augment that, complement that with other practices such as sadhanas, focusing on Buddha Amitabha for the sake of birth in Sukhavati. So completely compatible. And an interesting connection there between the, the tradition of China because Chan, Chan, Chan Buddhism definitely has a lot of overlap with the Dzogchen tradition. Historically, it would be quite interesting to know. And I'm just not a historian. But there are people who have studied it carefully and they have a lot of knowledge I don't have. Okay? Yes, Iliana. Um, you said the other day that one can achieve chamata through the single-pointed attention on loving-kindness. Yeah. So, what would be the extra benefits of, on achieving, of achieving chamata through the cultivation of loving-kindness? Good. And I like the way you said it the second time. It's a bit... Words are, are important. And it's actually not single-pointed concentration on loving-kindness, because then loving-kindness becomes the object. Right? If it's meditation on loving-kindness, then it's like meditation on my hand, then loving-kindness would be the object. And it never is. Right? So, I, I, I mean, before I answer, I'm going to ask you a question. When you are cult meditatively cultivating loving-kindness, practicing Maitri Bhavana in Sanskrit, um, what is the object of your meditation? What are you attending to? Can you answer? Sentient beings. Exactly right. Exactly right, yeah. So you're attending to sentient beings and you're doing so in the mode of, with a subjective quality of awareness of loving kindness. You have it exactly right. Exactly right. So the achieving shamatha by way of loving kindness, and the same is true for the other of the four immeasurables, is methodologically very different from any of the methods we're doing here. It's the closest actually to awareness of awareness, but of course it's very different still. But in, in most, modes of, uh, most modes of shamatha, we're tending to an object and we achieve shamatha with respect to that object, right? Um, well, when you achieve shamatha by way of loving-kindness, you are not achieving shamatha on all sentient beings. 
For that, for that, all you do is say, okay, I'll send you beings, I'm going to attend to you. Gotcha. Stability, clarity, check, check. But that's not loving kindness. So you're achieving shamatha by way of loving kindness by cultivating a sense of relaxation, stability, and vividness in terms of your subjective quality of awareness, in terms of your aspiration, your experience of loving kindness. That's where the sense of ease and the stillness, the stability, and the vividness are coming. And it's with reference to sentient beings but the shamatha is in the subjective state of awareness. Right? So as you recall, it's a very rich question. It deserves a good answer. As you recall in this meditative practice that you are cultivating initially, as we have done, first with discursive practice. It's not really analytical, but it is discursive. So you're bringing things to mind. You're bringing people to mind. You're doing some visualization. You're arousing aspirations. You may have um, words going on. May you be well and happy and so on. So it starts discursively. And then, as you go deeper and deeper, it's as if you are, every time you're engaging in the discursive meditation, it's as if you're rubbing two sticks together. And you're rubbing them and rubbing them, and hopefully after some time you get a bit of a spark, right? And you put some little dry cotton or paper by it, and you get a little bit of a flame, and the flame almost goes out, and you start rubbing again, you know. <laughs> Try to get that flame going. And then, it's a nice analogy, I think. You keep on rubbing, rubbing, and then tending it, tending it. It's about to go out. Okay, tend it some more and get another spark going until after some time. If you've got dry wood and you have a good you know, rubbing sticks, after some time, then it just catches fire. And then you can kind of, then you throw on a stick once in a while, but pretty much then you can enjoy it. And then if there's plenty of kindling there, then it will just grow and grow and grow and it can turn into a forest fire if you like. You know, it can grow as much as it can. And so in a very similar way, I like the image actually, is that as you're throwing the kindling on and rubbing the sticks and nurturing it with discursive meditation, after some point, it actually catches, right? And it's at that point that you just go into stabilizing quiet meditation and you sustain that flow, still attending to sentient beings, whether discrete ones or more generically, as we did in this last session, until you just... But, but you're maintaining that stability that there's an ongoing flow of that aspiration and there's a clarity in the sense that you really have very distinct aspiration, and it's referential for a long time, referential, really attending to sentient beings, and in that way, you're really achieving some samadhi by way of loving-kindness. With all that preamble, now I'll answer your question. And that is, this practice is so, by nature, benevolent. It is so virtuous. Following your breath isn't, and it's not just intrinsically virtuous, neither is just watching your mind. It's not intrinsically virtuous or just not intrinsically virtuous. It can easily be by context, motivation, and so forth and so on. But not intrinsically. You, know, you can imagine a person training to be a sniper or an air traffic controller and practicing mindfulness of breathing or any of these three practices. And the whole idea is I want to be a really good, I want to get raises, I want to be top air traffic controllers. Okay, fine, practice these and you'll probably be, do better. right? But it's not virtuous, it's just you're developing better attention skills. Cultivating loving kindness by way, by way of, excuse me, cultivating shamatha by way of loving kindness is by nature virtuous. I mean, loving kindness is just one of those core virtues. I would say on any planet and any galaxy, it's a virtue. And so, in so doing, you know, whatever your motivation would be, this is already virtuous, right? And so, the merit that arises from that is going to be very powerful. And the power of love also is very strong for purifying the mind. For purifying the mind. So this reminds me of something I read from the Buddha just a couple of months ago from the Theravada tradition. Theravada tradition. And the issue of karma comes up. 
and we consider, you know, you, let's imagine you're 30 years old or so. Well, that's 30 years of accumulating a lot of karma, right? Every day, every volitional action that is, you know, wholesome or unwholesome is more karma. So already with your 30 years or so, you've accumulated an awful lot of karma, wholesome, unwholesome, whatever it may be, let alone all your past lives. So one could wonder, how, can you, how are you ever going to get around to experiencing the, the fruit of all that karma? You've gotten already, already in, in 30 years, let alone if you live three times as long. How are you ever going to have time to experience the fruit of all that karma? Because one of the, the laws of karma is that the seeds of karma don't just kind of dry up all by themselves and vanish. They don't just get old and vanish, right? The seeds of karma, they stay until they're either antidoted or they come to, they germinate and they come to fruition, right? And the Buddha responded to that. And it's very much part of Theravada tradition, but it's part of, I think, all, all tools of Buddhism. And that is every time we engage in some virtuous action, whatever it may be, saving the life of a, an insect out on the road, cleaning up trash on the side. Of, that was, I know that was done with a virtuous motivation. Cleaning up those yucky plastic bags and cups and so forth uh, with a virtuous motivation. You know, that, that is virtue. Sitting and practicing loving kindness, cultivating loving kindness, that is a virtuous action. And so in so doing, that is right there as you're just sitting there without having to bring to mind specific unwholesome deeds that you might have done over the past decades or lifetimes. Just sitting there practicing loving kindness. It's already just snuffing out. Snuffing out. Or the, the, word, the, the, the phrase used in Buddhism is burning the seeds. That's why I kind of, now I'm thinking that's why maybe I like the kindling metaphor. You're just sitting there quietly cultivating loving kindness and as you continue on it, you're just burning, 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 burning negative seeds of negative karma from the past that will then never come to fruition because you burned them, right, by practicing loving kindness. So the purifying power is quite strong and it's so benevolent and loving kindness is one of those wonderful virtues that it's a virtue that gives rise to more virtue. That is, insofar as you become suffused with loving kindness, what kind of behavior is going to come out? What kind of speech? What kind of physical behavior? What other things might you do? Well, it'll be all good. You know? So I've, I've, I've thought for a long time that you know, I teach loving kindness, the four measurables, quite frequently. If anyone that I ever teach actually achieves shamatha by way of loving kindness, I want to invite them to be my next door neighbor. You know, I, I might have neighbors like that. And so once in a while, if I'm feeling bad, I just go and kind of sit by the fire. You know, just, can I just sit with you? Because that person has basically become an embodiment of loving kindness. And when one achieves that depth, then it's not unreasonable to expect that events will start arising like we hear about from Shantideva, from St. Francis of Assisi, and so forth. Animals respond to you differently. You know? And so you really, you have a physical effect on your environment. So, quite splendid. So, there's a, there's a method for that. Overall, to be really practical, it's probably going to be more effective to be emphasizing one of the more just straight kind of shamatha-shamatha methods of, the, for example, the kind we're focusing here, to make the mind more serviceable. But of course, to be going back and forth, let's say, between mindfulness of breathing and awareness of awareness and then loving-kindness and then kind of moving up kind of a love triangle there, you know, with the loving-kindness and let that loving-kindness be your motivation for the mindfulness of breathing, going right into the substrate consciousness and then over, then that would be like a circulating pool, you know, with three fountains. They can really, really enhance each other. And most likely, I mean, I, when I just think of sheer practicality, 
if one, is, if one holds as an, a vision, which I think is an absolutely incredibly noble vision, might I achieve shamatha and loving kindness? Boy, anybody who says that to me, boy, they'll just get a massive affirmation from me. And I suspect that overall, the most practical strategy for doing that would be to achieve shamatha by one of the other methods, but do it very much in tandem with or together with the cultivation of loving kindness. Getting into, we'd get the experience of doing it discursively and then and then just going non-discursive until the fire kind of starts to dwindle out a bit. And then you go discursive, throw a bit more kindling on, throw more wood on the fire, and then and then back to... So be doing that back and forth with one of the others. Achieve shamatha by one of these, these other practices. And once you've achieved shamatha, let's say with awareness of awareness, once you've achieved that, well, the shift for your whole body-mind is so wonderful, it's so wholesome, that if you've achieved shamatha there by way of awareness of awareness, and then you turn back to the cultivation of loving-kindness, which you've been cultivating all the way along anyway, you could finish that one off quite quickly and achieve shamatha all over again, but this time in loving-kindness. And if you do that, then I invite you to be my neighbor. <laughs> Wherever I'm living, please come be my neighbor. <laughs> Bless my grandson. <laughs> Because that person really will be an embodiment of virtue. Really marvelous. Fantastic. And then once you've achieved that, then I would say, you know, you should, you should really achieve bodhicitta now. Why not go on and just become a bodhisattva? That would be fantastic. So I guess at some point it becomes non-conceptual. It does. It does. Exactly right. Yeah. And after some point, um, even the distinct object of this person, my mother, America, Thailand, Mexico, planet Earth. It's done its work. We, it's, it's real. The loving kindness is real. And it's just kind of like a light bulb in, mid, in, mid, in, in deep space, a light bulb that's just emanating in all directions. So anything that should be coming in that field will be illuminated. And that's the idea of all sentient beings. It's just wide open. It excludes none. But it doesn't have to be, therefore, focusing on any particular group like that. So it's just wide open. Yeah. It become non-conceptual. When you consider that... Uh, I, I'm going to give you another quiz. You're, you're, you're so good, so I'm going to see... Will you trip up this time, or you can still give a uh, you know, right answer? But if we're looking for ultimates, I mean, when we're looking for ultimate sources, you know, like there are emergences, emergences, emergences all over the place. It's a very natural phenomenon of one phenomenon arising, emerging out of another. But if we look for, what's the ultimate source? I mean, the tap root, the, the, the root of roots, the bottom of the root of loving kindness. What do you think that is? Where does it ultimately spring from? Buddha nature. Yeah, got another one right. <laughs> yeah, Buddha nature. I mean, in a, in a way, it's obvious, but it's true. It's Buddha nature. And then if you consider Buddha nature is by nature, Buddha nature is Dharmakaya, Buddha mind is Rikpa, pristine awareness. Buddha mind, Dhammakaya, pristine awareness, they're non-conceptual. They're non-conceptual. Therefore, the root of loving-kindness has to be non-conceptual. Conceptualization always entails some degree of crystallization. A crystallization, a... like that, a closing in upon. So, oh, there's Ileana. And I say, oh, she's, but she's, that Ileana is not Heidi, and she's not Beth, she's not, she's not Jen, and she's not anybody else. Oh, so it's crystallized. I've isolated you now. As soon as I think, oh, Ileana, 
Oh, I remember Ileana. Yes, I remember Ileana. Then I've now crystallized you and separated you from everything that's not Ileana. Right? Well, that's useful. That's useful so I don't blend everybody's names and so forth. But nevertheless, there is something artificial about that. Right? Because you don't exist in isolation from all other contexts. But conceptualization presents you as if you do. I just think Ileana. And there she is hovering in midair, in mid-deep space. Just Ileana. Like that. Well, useful, but delusive. And so loving kindness is, is rooted in some, a dimension of, of reality that is neither delusive nor, or, nor conceptual. Yeah. And so how do you know when you're ready to, to achieve shamatha? With, when you're ready to? When you're ready to achieve shamatha. Ah, same things. The same things. I don't, I don't believe, I've never heard of there being a counterpart sign for loving kindness. But here, the Tibetan teachings are marvelous. Because I've never, again, I've, I've read accounts of actually achieving shamatha in the Theravada tradition. But Tsongkhapa and, and the other, and there's many, there's, within all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, they all have very, very good accounts of this. And it's all rooted in experience and written down in classical texts from India. But if you wonder, if you're if you're practicing, how do you say, practicing the metta bhavana or maitri bhavana, and then you achieve shamatha in that mode, you'll experience those same signs of achieving shamatha that Tsongkhapa describes in his Lamrim, you know, of this shift. But you can achieve shamatha multiple times. This is true in the Theravada tradition as well. I started with Sylvia. You may, you may start by achieving shamatha by way of mindfulness of breathing. But then there are, there are, there are shamatha or dhyana aficionados, people who really want it, this is what they really want to do. And so they may achieve dhyana multiple times. And this is actually taught, for example, in, in Buddha Gosa's Visuddhimagga, path of purification. You may achieve shamatha once on the earth element. You say, oh, oh that, was so, that was so interesting, let's do it again. Let's, let's get water and fire and air. So you may achieve it multiple times. And it's almost like collecting jewels. That when you do that, then you, if you go into full jhana, then you master this counterpart sign for earth, water, fire, air. Right? You can master you can master these these archetypes for each one, but you do have to do it. You'll, you'll get it'll get easier with the experience. Achieve dhyana once, and it's going to be easier for all the others, rather than starting from scratch. Right? But you can achieve shamatha in multiple ways, and so you can start. You can achieve shamatha by way of mindfulness or breathing, and then achieve it all over again in loving kindness. But then you might want to stop. You might think, I don't want to stop there. What about compassion? Don't want to leave out compassion. Achieve shamatha and compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. Right. And so each time, although your, your system has already achieved shamatha, now you've achieved shamatha in this vector. And each, they're all complementary to each other. Okay? Good. Unless there's a really quick one. If, if it's a longer one, let's wait until tomorrow. If it's really quick, we can do it now. You can, you can tell me. Yeah, Trish. You spoke yesterday of when one is looking... In, uh, observing the space of the mind, attending to the space of the mind, the yeah. space of the mind, there's a fizziness, an effervescence. Oh, right, quite so. Is that effervescence and fizziness also apparent while practicing awareness of awareness? If it is, you just let it be and release it, because it's still an appearance. Yeah, a word that cropped up since we're putting that up, but a cropped up, and I'm saying this only poetically, but I kind of like it poetically is if you, um, after the retreat's over, if you want to get on the internet, you might check out the, the term quantum foam. Quantum foam. 
It's a very esoteric notion in quantum mechanics. Um, and I've, I've studied quantum mechanics a fair amount, and this one I've studied just a tiny bit. But it, the word kind of has a right, right resonance. And I'm, this is poetry, this is not physics. When I relate this to meditation, so I'm not suggesting some profound parallel. But quanta, of course, means distinct, quantified, distinct, and not just a plenum like spaghetti, but distinct like that. Like a photon is a quantum of energy, right? And so quantum foam, it, I think it, it actually captures the nuance of it. That it's quantum, that is, it's this space of the mind is like bubbling over. It's like a pot with bubbles coming up, of bubbling up little images and this and that and the other thing. And they are discrete, so there's a quantum, but it's kind of like a foam, like it's all foam. There's no flat-out, empty, complete vacuous areas. There's just nothing whatsoever. It's a whole domain that's just filled with like a quantum foam. And virtual reality, that's another one. You know, virtual particles, you might have heard this in, in elementary particle physics, quantum mechanics, of particles that emerge from the, the energy of the vacuum. Now, this was the primary topic of my research in quantum mechanics. I wrote a whole dissert- a, a thesis on this. Uh, but the energy, the energy of empty space called the zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. And that's what I really focus on. So I focus for about two years on nothing. Or the best appro- nature's best, best approximation of nothing, which winds up being this energy of the vacuum, an energy that's implicit in empty space itself. And I did the mathematics for it. This is just for fun. But the mathematics suggests, if you just read the straight mathematics and don't try to alter it in any way, that the energy density of the energy of empty space is infinite. That's what mathematics is. And I did it, 30 pages of mathematics. It wasn't that easy for me because I'm not much good at mathematics. Um, But that energy of empty space, again, is a nice metaphor. Because it's empty. You've taken everything you possibly can out of space, and so it's completely empty. And what's left is the energy of empty space. And its density is infinite. If you read read the equations literally and don't try to modify them, right? It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. Because this is the empty... Once you've sucked out all the, the junk of your coarse mind, once you've sucked you out, you're not junk, but, you know, coarse man, woman, American, Mexican, and all that kind of... You know, you create a vacuum. And this is what happens when you settle your mind in its natural state. You've dissolved. You've melted away the coarse mind. And you're left with a vacuum. And that vacuum is a substrate. And what's it filled with? Sheer creativity, a whole ocean of potential. It's pretty cool, isn't it? I think so. Let's have dinner. Enjoy your evening.